right. Uh, if you got a Bible, open and find the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 15. Our passage this morning is actually going to cover Exodus 13, verse 17, through near the end of chapter 15, specifically verse 21. I want to thank, but we're going to start in, in chapter 15. I want to thank Greg Key for teaching for me the past two Sundays. He did a great job. If you were here, you know that. Um, two Sundays ago, I was in Anaheim, California for the Southern Baptist Convention, and then last Sunday, I was at home with COVID, which I picked up in Anaheim, California at the Southern Baptist Convention, but I'm glad to be back. Um, I need to also thank Stone and Brandon Riddlemeyer, wherever Brandon is, for teaching my place for at Monday Night Bible Study. hope you didn't lead them down to a heretical path or anything like that, but I'm grateful to you guys. Um, all right, so we're picking up where we left off last, where Greg left you off last week. Last Sunday, Greg taught on the institution of the, of the Passover, which the Lord instituted uh, to, to prepare his people for the 10th and final plague, which was the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, including the cattle. Um, you know, in that, not to recap everything he said, but in that, the Lord taught his people that their salvation would come through uh, the death of a substitute in their place. And, um, you know, in that tenth and final plague, there was a death in every home. Um, for the Egyptians, it was the firstborn in every home. But for those Israelites who obeyed the word of the Lord, it was the sacrifice that was substituted in their place. Jesus would later fulfill that prophetic foreshadow. Think of what he, the words he said to prepare us for what he was about to do, that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for the ransom for many. Or that, he, as Peter would put it, that, that what Jesus did was giving his life as the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Well, today we, we progress to the next section in Exodus. We actually come to the actual ex, Exodus event of the people out of Egypt. All that we have seen so far in the book of Exodus uh, has, has been prelude and preparatory to this event. And in all the Old Testament, um, one could argue that this is the most singularly important and significant event in the Old Testament. Um, we, we saw in the, in the first week of our study in this book um, that there's this repeated pattern and theme of exodus that that begins in the garden of eden and happens throughout genesis and the life of abraham and it continued in the early life of moses and it's seen here in this in in this paradigmatic event it's going to repeat itself in the old testament it's finally going to make its way where in luke chapter 9 on the mount of transfiguration it talks about jesus is about to go to jerusalem and through his death there on the cross he's going to accomplish a greater exodus. This is a huge, huge theme. So exodus is arguably the most important event and redemptive concept in Scripture. And in, our, in, a, in the passage for our attention this morning, um, we, we have, like I said, this, this prototypical and paradigmatic exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. I hope you had a chance to read it ahead of time. I try to put it out there at least a day in advance. We won't read the whole thing this morning, but just for a little context, um, why don't we read the Song of Moses found here in, in chapter 15. Follow along as I read 
Beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 18. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. This is after all the stuff happened. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, or literally, you blew with your spirit. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, what we just read and everything else we'll see in, your, in the Scriptures this morning is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, because it is such, we ask your help that you might give us eyes to see the truth about you and, and of Christ in this passage and all the others. Would you give us minds to understand your word would you give us hearts to embrace your word and love it and see it as the most important um, the most important thing of all things would you give us wills to obey what it admonishes us to do give me the help that I need to teach please give us all ears to hear what the spirit is saying in your word this morning in Jesus name amen What we just read is the culminating song um, to the Exodus event recorded in our passage for this morning. It's one of the most important songs in the Bible. It doesn't just describe what happened, but it's also prophetically describing the saving work of Jesus, as we're going to see a little bit later on this morning. But the central line in that song 
that needs to guide our attention this morning is what it rhetorically asks in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That, that repeated rhetorical question, who is like you with the expected and the assumed answer, no one. And I mentioned to you in week one of this study that, that, that um, this is the central theme of, of the, the first section of the book of Exodus. I said you could draw a dividing line between chapters 15 and 16 in this 40-chapter book. And so chapters 1 through 15 are like the first part, or it's like part 1 of Exodus. Chapters 16 through 40 is like part 2. And there are distinct differences between those two parts in terms of what appears to be God's providential aim, what he's trying to do in those different parts of the book. And I said that, that the, the, what God appears to be up to, what his providential aim appears to be in part 1, chapters 1 to 15, is, is, is demonstrating his glory, his supreme glory in the eyes of all people, making sure they see it, making sure they recognize it. And the, chap, the, the, the theme for the rest of the book, chapters 16 through 40, it's going to switch a little bit. It's not like he leaves that entirely behind, but the focus is more intensely going to be on God manifesting his presence uh, in the company of his people. Okay? So in part one, it's making his glory known. In part two, it's making his presence, uh, make, making his glory shown, making his presence known in part two. Our passage today is squarely in and brings to a climax and a conclusion that first part of the book. Um, and if you're able to read this passage, 13, 17 to 15, 21, ahead of time, there is no way you could have missed this emphasis in it. It is the constant theme of this whole passage, and it's exemplified in that crescendo of Moses' song in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord? So the storyline of our passage is pretty straightforward. Um, because of the severity of the plagues that we studied a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, Pharaoh finally relented, and he, he declared that the people could leave. You saw that last week in, in, in what Greg taught, and you know as the Lord had prophesied as early as Genesis 15 to, to Abraham, that the, the people would leave with great riches, so they plundered the Egyptians. They just simply asked them for their good, goods and their gold, and sure, you can have them, and off they go. Um, but as the people were leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind. He and his army pursue. Um, the, the Israelites see his army coming. They fearfully see him coming, and the Lord hemmed them in behind him before in a pillar of cloud and fire, told Moses, Put your staff in the water. The waters of the Red Sea divide. They walk across on dry ground. When the people are safely across, Pharaoh and his army pursue. But when they are there, God causes the waters to come crashing down to drown them. And hence, the Lord redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they sang that song of Moses in praise of that. That's the story. But it's the way that the story is told. That, that, and it's told deliberately to draw our attention to 
the glory of God over Pharaoh that we need to see. And so here's what I'd like us to focus on for a few minutes as we think about this text. If you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see. First of all, I want us to see the glory of God purposed. The glory of God purposed. The, the, the purpose of God in the Exodus event that I just described is expressly no different than, than, than what we saw in, in the plagues and in everything else that we saw before that. This is the very straightforward point here. That's the clear main point. Uh, and so we need to see it. God has purpose that his glory be seen above all. Next, secondly, the glory of God proven. Proven. So having seen what, he's, what his stated purpose is, I want us to zoom in on the text and take a closer look at the descriptions of God's actions in this event. Uh, a surface or outward or, uh, yeah, surface telling of this story, you might think the main characters are Pharaoh and his army pursuing and Israel and, and the people of Israel fleeing, and that's kind of the battle between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and it's just not true. If you look carefully at the text and the telling of the story, the main actor and the main doer of things in this is God himself. And he doesn't just, so he doesn't just, just declare his glory above all others. He proves it. He demonstrates it. And thirdly and finally, I want us to notice the glory of God proclaimed. Not just in this present text, but how this, this text is picked up later in Scripture. This local historical Exodus event is, is ultimately a foreshadow, a, a prophetic foreshadow of a greater universal exodus coming. This is, what we're studying today is a shadow of a greater substance coming. So what I'd like us to see is, is these three things. So let's take a closer look and think about the glory of God purposed. You can see how the dominant theme of the next section of Exodus, 16 to 40, kind of creeps in a little here, and you get a little taste of it here, when for the first time, at the end of chapter 13, if you're looking there, we learn for the first time <clears throat> that the Lord's presence would be with his people as he manifested to them in the, pillars, in the pillars of fire and cloud in front of them and behind them. Fire and cloud being such common um, images of God, manifestations of God, uh, throughout Scripture, not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well. You think, you think uh, how God appeared to, um, to Abraham in Genesis 15 in that covenant ceremony as a smoking fire pot is what it's described in Genesis 15. Or as he appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 in a burning bush. Or he appears to him here or... Uh, in, in pillar of fire and cloud or in the tabernacle and later the temple, how the cloud of his glory descends or on the Mount of Transfiguration, lightning, which is, is like fire and cloud descending on Christ. Common, common uh, uh, images of the presence of God among his people. And the text expressly says it was the Lord appearing to them. In 1330, uh, excuse me, in 1321, it says... The Lord went before them. The Lord, covenant name, small caps. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, by night in a pillar of fire. Interestingly, if you look down in chapter 14, verse 19, it says, then the angel of God 
the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them in the, in the pillar of cloud. The angel of God. And it's often in the Old Testament that the angel of God or the angel of the Lord is, is, a, is a theophany of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the triune God. And it's, that's interesting that it would be the case here because it, it demonstrates that there's, there's in, the mystery, in the mystery of the Trinity, there's something fitting about the second person of that triune God being the one who is the focal point of a, of a manifestation to us uh, and, at a, and of a mediated form to us to see his glory. Um, all right, so while his presence among his people is clearly foreshadowed in this, um, that is not the ultimate focus here, nor is it merely the salvation of his people. But rather, the main point here is the rather uh, unmistakable and undeniable manifestation and recognition of the glory of God above all things. That's not to say that the salvation of his people is not one of the providential aims in this event. Obviously it is, but there's a higher aim. And, and, and that is that through it all, through the salvation of his people, the glory and the worth of God is magnified and acknowledged. We've already mentioned that earlier in, in an earlier week when we talked about, um, it may have been week one or week two, when we talked about God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, and you might recall that I said then that if God's purpose in this Exodus event was merely to save his people out of slavery, if that was the, the main purpose, then what sense does it make for him to harden Pharaoh's heart against that very thing? It doesn't make any sense. It makes greater sense, though, if you understand that the salvation of his people is a penultimate, not an ultimate, goal. That his ultimate goal is, is, is uh, that in the way that he saves his people, which is a secondary goal, the primary goal is seen, he is sovereign over Pharaoh. Otherwise, why harden his heart? So we've already seen that theme in Exodus, and we see it again here in our present passage. Yes, the Lord is about to act to save his people, but his stated purpose here is to display his supreme and sovereign glory in the process. First of all, he states his purpose again to be glorified over Pharaoh. Look in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Well, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord has determined to save his people in such a way that Pharaoh cannot help but give glory to God and humble himself before him. And then there's a repeated reference in the text that demonstrates that God's purpose is not just for Pharaoh to acknowledge his glory, but for all the Egyptians to do that. Look down in chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. He tells Moses, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden, isn't that interesting, not just the Pharaoh, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. So God purposes to work in such a way 
that his glory is magnified over Pharaoh and is recognized by all the Egyptians. But it's not only in Pharaoh's eyes, and it's not only in the Egyptians' eyes that God wants to demonstrate this. It's also in the eyes of his own people. I want you to notice something we read about Israel here. Notice God's purpose for them. In, in chapter 14, verse 10, the people of Israel see Pharaoh and his army coming against them. And it says in verse 10, Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. But Moses reminds them down in verses 13 and 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And then the Lord acts in such a way before their eyes that we read, same chapter down in verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against, against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in his servant Moses. They went from fearing the Egyptians to fearing the Lord. And it's worth noting just practically here, The state, of the, the state of mind and heart of the people of Israel here in this chapter had everything to do with where they directed their eyes and where they directed their attention. When all they looked at was Pharaoh and his army, they feared him because that's all they could see. But when they fixed their eyes on the Lord and what he was, what he was doing and had done in their place before their very eyes, they feared him and it overcame their fear of Pharaoh. That's a practical point just in daily life. We are, we are increasingly a culture that is overtaken by fear and anxiety. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that, that it, I'm, not try, make, I'm not making a completely sweeping statement about anxiety and fear. It's a complicated thing. But I'm saying in many cases, our fears and anxieties are due to where we're fixing our eyes. Right? This isn't the main point of the text, but it's a legitimate point of the text. And it matters where we look. It matters where we set our thoughts. But in keeping with the purpose of this whole first section of the book, the Lord clearly states his purpose in the exodus of his people out of Egypt, which is the clear sight and exaltation uh, of his own glory and recognition in the eyes of his enemies and in the eyes of the people. This is the purpose for which God does everything, including the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. This isn't limited here. I'm going to read you a passage out of Ezekiel, just, just a few verses. This is the Lord about to prophesy the coming of the new covenant of salvation in Jesus Christ. And listen to how he prefaces that new covenant coming in Jesus Christ. He tells them why he's about to do what he's about to do in Jesus. This is Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 24. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then he prophesies the new covenant coming in Jesus Christ. 
Why is this an important theme to see? Why is this, don't, don't get bored by this because this is hugely important. Why is this an important thing? I can think of at least a couple of reasons why this is important to know. One, it makes your assurance of salvation in Christ even stronger. God will most certainly keep his promise to you. God will most certainly forgive your sins in Jesus Christ because they were laid on Christ in your place. God will most certainly preserve you to the end. Why? Not just because he's good and loving, which is strong in itself, but because it brings him glory to do all those things and to be all those things and he's committed most to bringing himself glory. But it's not just your assurance of salvation, but it, 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 this is the grounds of our hope for the rectification of all things. Like, our, our hope in, the, in, in, in that all things, all, all the bad things are going to come untrue, all of that is grounded in this and and it's made all the more sure because the lord's commitment to his glory above all things there there's a line in the hymn uh this is my father's world it's one of my favorite hymns and and the line in there says and though the wrong seems oft so strong god is the ruler yet there is a That's a comforting line because of what it assumes, even though it doesn't expressly say it, what it assumes about God. Because without without a supreme commitment to his own glory, God being the ruler is in itself not yet a complete comfort when the wrong, wrong seems off so strong. But with a commitment to bringing his glory above all things, we can now rest in the promise of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord, against his own? He who sits in the heavens laughs. We can know that that's not a scary thing. That's a comforting thing because he is committed to his own glory above all things. And what we have here in our passage in Exodus this morning is not just a clear presentation of the purpose of God to demonstrate his glory, but it, it, it even further shows how he proves it to us. The glory of God proven. Think about that with me for just a second. The way this story is told, if you read it carefully enough, doesn't just indicate the purpose of God in Exodus. It, it makes it clear that he carried out that purpose. It wasn't just his aim. It was his accomplishment. Um, just We're looking at the end of chapter 13 and chapter 14 and most of chapter 15. In just those first two chapters, the last few verses of chapter 3 and chapter 14, um, not even counting the song, which we read at the beginning and which we'll look at in a minute, just in that last little part of 13 and 14, which is not a very long passage, it is kind of hard to miss the emphasis put on this. Walk with me through these verses, and we'll, we'll do this quickly, though. In chapter 13, verse 18, God led the people. In chapter 13, verse 21, it says the Lord went before them. In chapter 14, verse 8, it says the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 
In chapter 14, verse 21, it says, I, just, I love this emphasis, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces and the Lord threw them into a panic. In 1425, it says, the Lord clogged the Egyptians' wheels, and the Lord fights for them. In chapter 14, verse 27, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the sea. And in chapter 14, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. There is no way to read this account and not to see the Lord not simply declaring his glory his sovereign glory over Pharaoh and his army, but demonstrating it. And when you, read, when you read that song, when you go to chapter 15 and you read the song of Moses that they sing in, the next, in, this, in chapter 15, the words of the song extol the saving works of God. It says, it, it begins, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. And it just goes on and on and on like that. Even, even in this song, deliberately contrasting what Pharaoh planned to do and what God, in fact, did. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. That's the glory of the enemy. Plans. Plans. Verse 10. You blew them with the wind. You blew them with your spirit. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's the glory of the Lord. Verse 11. Who is like the Lord? The Lord, the Lord didn't just plan and purpose to get glory over Pharaoh. He got glory over Pharaoh. His glory wasn't just purposed before history, but proven in history. And I think that should give us confidence for what's coming in the future, which is the emphasis of the last point, which we need to see very quickly and I think we'll actually have time to discuss around our tables, which is the glory the Lord proclaimed. Think about that with me for just a minute. I think there are three quick ways to see this point. The glory of the Lord proclaimed. The first is in the song itself in chapter 15. The second is going to be an interesting feature of this whole section of Exodus highlighted in our passage. And then the third is going to be a way that this song is picked up later in Scripture. I want to highlight each of those briefly, and hopefully it'll be clear to you. First of all, notice the emphasis in the song itself. We've already highlighted the message of the song in the first half that leads up to that climactic verse in verse 11, but notice where the emphasis turns in verses 14 to 16. After all the recounted recounting of the works of the Lord, we read in those verses, the peoples have heard, they tremble, Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people 
passed by whom you have purchased. Do you hear the emphasis in that? The glory and the fear and the fame of the Lord is not just known in Israel. It's not just known in Egypt. It has been proclaimed in all the lands around. And it's interesting that it says in what I just read that all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. <clears throat> because when you come, when you come to the book of Joshua, chapter 2, and you meet Rahab, here's what, here's what Rahab says in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11 about her Canaanite people. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away from before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted away. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is, that is the testimony of a Canaanite prostitute speaking about something that happened 40 years earlier. 40 years. And, the, and, and 40 years later, the glory and the fear of the Lord was still weighing heavy and was very present in the minds of the Canaanites. That's one way we see the glory of the Lord proclaimed here. But in, in addition to the song itself proclaiming the glory of the Lord among the nations, there's another interesting feature of this whole first section of Exodus um, that in its own right proclaims the glory of the Lord. The first, the first section of Exodus is sort of bookended by Moses' sister Miriam. Um, and in both instances, she's sort of doing essentially the same thing on the front end and on the back end. Um, and let me try to show you what I'm talking about. Back in chapter 2, when, when Moses' mother made a tiny ark for her infant son Moses and sent him down the waters of the Nile, it then draws your attention to Moses' sister Miriam, who followed closely behind the little basket, the little ark of salvation, and... She followed closely behind, and, and she was there when Pharaoh's daughter found him. In essence, what is she doing there? She is there bearing witness to and seeing with her own eyes the salvation of God for her people in the sparing of her brother Moses and, and, and him being saved out of the, the deathly waters of the Nile that all the other kids were drowned in. And, and she is there bearing witness to the, to the one that God would use to lead her people out of slavery. She's, she's seeing the salvation of God on the front end. And now here on the back end of, uh, in, uh, of that same section in chapter 15, after the song of Moses ends in verse 18, it ends with another reference to Moses' sister Miriam. In verse 20, who along with... She, by the way, would have been among that company of people who, in the verses earlier, who stood firm and saw the salvation of God as Moses told them to do. And they came safely through the waters. And now Miriam took a tambourine and all the other ladies, she goes out singing her own song proclaiming 
that the, the salvation of God. And so this, this, these, these bookends of Miriam in chapter 2 and chapter 15, these are just signposts. She's a signpost pointing us to the glory of God and the salvation of his people. She's proclaiming the glory of God. There's one more thing that we need to see that's not found here in the book of Exodus, but on the other end of our canon of Scripture in Revelation 15. Last fall, spring, we studied through the book of Revelation, and you may recall this. Chapter 15 of the book of Revelation commences the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And these, these bowls of his wrath being poured out, they are associated with the second coming of Christ. In chapter 15, verse 1, these seven bowls of God's wrath are called seven plagues. That's very Exodus language. And it, and it says in verse 1 that with these, the wrath of God is finished. So they're associated with the final judgment at, at, with, at the second coming of Christ. And in view of those judgments, and in view of the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, we are told in verse 3 that all the angels in heaven, what do they sing? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They sang that song in Exodus 15 in heaven at the second coming of Christ. Not just, why would they sing that in heaven? Because that song was never just about God defeating an ancient Egyptian king. But because that historical reality was itself a prophecy of a coming victory of God over all of his enemies which will be complete at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the glory of God that is proclaimed here in Exodus is not just some nebulous idea about the glory of God that we can find vague confidence in, but it has a face, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a glory that will that proclaim, that, that, will, that will find its final fulfillment at His second coming of which we've already been given great assurance by his resurrection from the dead. The song of Moses is the song of the Lamb. And in light of that, listen to the final words of the song of Moses. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful word. Thank you for these. It's so much better that you didn't just tell us these things, that you, you actually gave us living prophecies rooted in history. You gave us acted out parables in history that show us that the things that they pointed, point to are just as surely coming as just as surely as those things happened in the past. And Lord, I thank you so much for 
this beautiful word. Give us grace for a few minutes as we, um, as we think about these things around our tables for just a minute. In Jesus' name, amen.